Up next on Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss bespoke software development, URL routing, the God algorithm, and getting your database under version control on IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. So we have some Stack Overflow news. Actually, I have quite a bit of Stack Overflow news. Okay, let's go. I'm taking notes. Stack so Overflow. So actually, I'm just going through the list. Wait, so let, we, me do, actually... uh, let me just take attendance here. Jeff? Oh, check. Present. <laughs> right, and Joel, present. Okay, let's go ahead. Stack Overflow <laughs> news. For okay, Murray, that's good. <laughs> Yeah, uh, we uh, let's see. We we implemented the flare feature. Yes, I've been waiting for that flare. Yeah. and you know the first. I guess I tried the beta, and it wasn't quite quite working out. Well, sometimes what we do is we put stuff on the blog for. I mean, really, the blog is a, is a small fraction of our ov- overall audience. So we feel like that's a that's a way of sort of beta testing a feature is to announce it on the blog, mm-hmm. not really make any explicit links to it on the site. And then sort of see how it works. Because what we found is that no matter what we think the feature should be like and our idea of how the feature should work, yeah, there's always changes. You know, there's always things we didn't think about or, you know, things people want that sure. we just couldn't think of ourselves. So we feel like every feature gets changed pretty rapidly after we deploy it. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of the intent there was to deploy it see the feedback we got and make some changes and redeploy. And I think we're pretty happy with what we have now. Okay. Uh, have you got it in it to work? Uh, I haven't I haven't tried recently. I was just going to ask if you had fixed that thing. So you have a choice of an iframe or a, a, a little JavaScript though. That's right. And there's actually a couple different internal formats. There's like JSON. There's like JSONP. There's a bunch of different formats you can choose from to get the data back. Yeah. But, 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 but most people are just going to want to cut and paste. Uh, a blob of code into their HTML, presumably. Right, and that so should work. I think it was just a styling issue. It was the way the styling was coming down or not coming down. Yeah. Uh, certainly on the, on the blog demo, I've been using the iframe just because it's a little bit simpler. But doesn't did you fix the problem? My iframe was coming out with all kinds of extra scroll bars, and uh, it just wasn't looking right. Make sure you make sure you copy when you copy the snippet. There's a bunch of parameters to the uh, iframe that you need to set. Okay. So check that. But it should be working. I will try that. Tell you what, why don't you sing us a little song? Sing us a couple of rounds of Row, Row, Row Your Boat, and I'll, I'll try that right now. City Desk. For what purpose? So that I can try putting the, the, the flare on my site while, while the, our, our listeners are entertained. Oh, I see. So I go to stackoverflow.com. And you listeners can do this too. You go to stackoverflow.com and you hit users. No, you hit your name. And wait, where's the flare button? Oh, you say... Slash user slash flare? Right? Yes, yeah. user slash flare. Isn't that weird? If there was a user named flare, <laughs> it's not. All right, never mind. We actually did run into that. That's a routing issue where 
the way you name your routes in ASP.NET MVC. Mm-hmm. If you do it wrong, you will run into conditions where you can't have a user named update and things like that. So you do have to be careful about that. Flare. Stack overflow. And then I'll go in here and I'll change that to that. I put the little script in. All right, let's see how this how this worked. Oops. Okay, never mind. That's going to be an hour before this finishes publishing, and I can see what it looks like. <laughs> so anyway, uh, for the for the confused listeners at home, the thing we've been calling Flare is like a little badge that you put on your own website, which at all times will show, like if you have a blog or something, uh, will show your Stack Overflow uh, identity and your reputation and badges and stuff like that in like a little rectangle that shows up on your website. And it's just a little way of showing off your uh, your Stack Overflow creds on your blogs. Right. right. And this, this was a feature that was uh, highly voted on user voice. Um, eventually we got to it. We, we satisfied a lot of the requests on top of it and eventually became the highest rated request. Yeah. So I figured it was time to do it. And I'm, I'm pretty happy with how it came out. You know, you can get these put on your t-shirt. <laughs> That's true. You can get your flare on your t-shirt. Yeah. Brent Ozar has a little uh, a page. Where is that thing? I don't know the exact URL, but I know what you're talking about. We can link in the show notes. Yeah. Um, Link to it for my. Uh, here we go. It's a uh, it's a website called social-shirt.com. Anyway, the URL is shirt.social-shirt.com/stackoverflow-shirt.html. Right. So if you want to wear a real world flare, uh, yeah, it it makes a T-shirt that shows your your Stack Overflow stuff. You know, we didn't know what to call that. We were originally calling it the badge, but we already have a system of badges. Oh, I see. So, so there's a name conflict there. Yeah, so then once we went through the list, we're like, okay, Flare, that's the obvious thing to call it because, you know, Office Space is such a timeless classic. So, Speaking of MVC, I noticed that in the uh, Stack Overflow uh, code, you guys had, like, a, a, you, instead of putting all the uh, putting all the maps, uh, the you know, the URL mapping in one place, you sort of mm-hmm. you tag it onto the, uh, uh, the methods and the controllers themselves. You have, like, a way for the controllers to do that. Oh, that's right. I forgot Joel has access to our code now. That's scary. <laughs> yes. So we can look at our code. Um, I, I, yes. I, I assigned a, I didn't, you know, now you're, now everybody's thinking, oh, Joel is smart. He read the code. But actually, I just sort of showed it to a couple of developers here who uh, were like, wow, this is really good. They were, really? They were totally impressed uh, oh, at, that's at good. how nicely organized it was. And I said, well, what in to us, it doesn't. It always is a work in progress. I mean, I, I talked about this on a previous podcast, but uh, I feel like my code is never really as good as it should be. I mean, we're always trying to make it better. Um, and one of the things we do, since you mentioned it, this actually is a good thing to bring up. It's related to routing. Remember how you said there, you can't have a user named Flare? Right. <laughs> Which is true, by the way. <laughs> so you have to be careful how you set up your routes so you don't conflict like user-entered information. Right. We kind of made a little bit of a mistake there uh, in how we laid it out initially. So... You know, we have it'll be like stackoverflow.com slash users slash ID, mm-hmm. and that's the thing that really matters, and then slash some chunk of text that we don't care about, mm-hmm. except when we care about it. <laughs> so it would be normally like slash user slash one, which is my user ID, slash Jeff dash Atwood. But the Jeff dash Atwood part is essentially irrelevant. We don't look at that. We look at the, the, the number. We, we like the text to be there. Let's say it's a Stack Overflow question. Right, it'll be, sure. Yeah, question slash number slash title. The title's really important there for 
so that people can find your stuff uh, in Google and, and through web searches. Because if you get hits on the, the string in the URL, mm-hmm. almost all web search engines factor that heavily into the resulting output. So you want people to type in words that are in the title of the URL because it's a logical thing to match on. Um, but in the case of users, this is a bit of a... It, it, you can see in both cases where your display name, my display name is Jeff Atwood, and the question title, those are the things that the user controls. So if you actually have a route like we do, which is users ID uh, flare, mm-hmm. then you have a conflict. So we actually changed it to user slash flare slash whatever the number is, which is a little bit inconsistent, but we felt like that was better than having that overlap. Mm-hmm. And those routes are... The way we implemented them are actually like decorators, um, attributes right. on the methods. Right. So for any given method, if you're wondering how you get to it through the browser, um, you just actually look at the attribute above the, the method signature. That's really cool no. because then you have it all in one place, sort of like if you ever delete that method, you don't have to remember to go delete something out of the route map. And it's yeah. only the... Uh, well, exactly. And this is really the principle of locality. It's the same reason you would declare mm-hmm. variables as close as possible to the code. Sure. Because we found, that's right, we found over time that we were we were declaring these routes in like a central block in every controller, like at, just at, some, at the top of the controller, basically. But it's conceptually the same as having some constant value in your function way at the top, and then like 10 screens down, you know, God forbid you write a function 10 screens long, but let's say you did... Um, you always forget by the time you get down to that code, you can't even remember what the variables are. Right. So it's just really the principle of locality. Sure. Uh, and we actually haven't backfilled all of our code to do that yet. That was that was a change that Jared did maybe, gosh, a month ago. Mm-hmm. We've been doing it as we touch the code. We've been converting it. But not all the routes are converted yet. But that is a good tip for MBC. The only thing you got to be careful about, Joel, is um, overlapping routes. You actually kind of have to have a route priority. Yeah. Because uh, we we talked to Phil Hack, who's the PM on NBC, and told him about this, and we said we think this approach really makes sense, yeah. and he warned us about the route priority issue. That well, there should just be okay. So then all you need to have is like a little automated test that goes and does reflection or whatever, and the first time you run your code, just warns you if you've ever if you've created an overlapping route, right? Well, I I think you could do that. In, in the case where you don't have overlapping routes, it's a non-issue, right? Sure. If, if your routes don't overlap to any significant degree, then it doesn't matter. So but an overlapping route for the uninformed would be the same URL is supposed to run two different piece, pieces of code. Yeah, or they're highly similar URLs. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's questions of order you can get into because you could detect like a number in the route, a string in the route. There's ways to declare them that can cause essentially circular type references if you're mm-hmm. not careful. So in that case, you'd have to set a priority and say this route takes precedence yeah. over that route. And then you would get a, a, a Stack Overflow if you had a circular reference. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny That's how right. many Stack Overflow jokes there are. Lots. can never be enough Stack Overflow jokes. But yeah, routing is really fundamental to MVC. We actually talked about this in the Mix presentation even, you know, just getting the URLs correct and having a nice clean set of uh, ways you type stuff into the address bar for the user is, is one of the key goals of NBC. So routing is really fundamental. It's nice to do that in a clean and clear way. Mm-hmm. So that, okay. let's see. Oh, flare. flare. So flare. I put the flare up on my website and the little, uh, you know what happened? The little, the background, the background white blob is, is in the wrong position. Hmm. Well, make sure you pass in, um, there's different parameters you can pass in to get different styles. And there's like a no style one. 
Well, I just cut and pasted. The, the trouble well, is that it's, it's, uh, I wonder if there's some, uh, I'm going to have to debug the CSS to figure this out because it must be inheriting something. Well, theme clean is, try theme equals none. But then I won't get anything. Well, try it. All right. Will do. I mean, the, the, those are your really your two options. Basically, have a theme, which is CSS, or don't. <laughs> so try it without and just see if that... I think that without CSS, it, it, it doesn't uh, even put it, the things in the right position. Oh. You know what I mean? Like, oh, right. Like the word, get uh, the, the, the CSS is needed to at least... Oh, I see what you're saying. That's position right. the yeah, picture right. relative to the... You're right. Um, okay, it needs a little bit of uh, debugging, but... Uh, I'm going to blame your CSS. That's what we do. We'll just blame you. Blame the user. That's what we do. Um, so the, that's, that's the, Flare. The, the trouble with CSS is it doesn't have that proper locality of control. So it's very hard to make a blob of HTML that is completely protected in a way that it can be stuck anywhere reasonable in an HTML page and control its own appearance. Right, because this is the problem. You want to give a little people a little piece of HTML that they can put on their page and have it always work in a consistent way. And unless it's basically an image tag with a GIF, it's very <laughs> likely that it's going to be in yes. some way influenced. Even an image tag, in some way, it's going to no matter how many styles you put on, it's going to somehow accidentally inherit various CSS styles from its environment, from its ambient well, environment. That, that is true. I mean, like we use div. Like, say you uh, apply some. Core. Some global thing to div. Yeah, some, yeah. <laughs> to div. Yeah, well, we use div, so yeah, that's good. So the only thing you can do is put like a complete CSS reset in every single tag that you give me. Yeah. No, I, I agree. You, you do have to be careful. The there. other thing is that the, the logo, the stack, the, this little miniaturized Stack Overflow logo is just totally mm-hmm. mangled. I kind of agree with you. I've been working with Jen on that. We have this other designer that we've been uh, working with on this, Jen, who's actually an old friend of mine. Mm hmm. And uh, he's been converting. We had to go to a trans, completely transparent fave icon. Right. Because we have different background colors and stuff like that. Sure. Prior to this, it was like a white background. Everything was anti-alias to white. Yeah, exactly. It was just fixed, like a constant value. Now it's transparent. But I agree, it kind of got a little weird. I don't know why. This is the second iteration of it, so I have to go back with him. All right. This is uh, this is getting boring for our listeners, I hereby decree. What else is new in the world of Stack Overflow? <laughs> well, you didn't let me transition. I was going to oh. transition on Flare. All right, go ahead. Um, Take so the other thing, the other probably uh, interesting thing is that we actually have community moderators now. Mm-hmm. In other words, this is the first time in the history of Stack Overflow that the people who have full control over the system, and I mean truly full control, they can do anything we can do um, that isn't us, essentially. They can upload new code to the server. Kind of a big step. That was actually a little bit scary for us, um, just to make sure that we got everything right on the moderation side. Uh, And and the community moderators on the Stack Overflow side were elected Mm -hmm. in the election process. And it's it's Mark Gravel and Bill the Lizard. All right, Mark and Bill. And on the server fault side, uh, it's uh, Denny Cherry Mm -hmm. and Kara Marfia. Those are our two moderators. We couldn't actually elect anyone there because there's no way to hold an election because there's no community yet. So we kind of reached out to a few people and yep. had some volunteers. So we really appreciate everybody that's pitching in to to become a moderator. It's cool, and you've got you've, you, we've now got um, most of you don't see this, but there's now a much better system for moderators that just shows a little list of things that have been tagged that moderators need to look at. 
and you yeah. can kind of go well, that, through. That was the focus of a lot of work that week running up to the uh, – during the election was we realized we had to really improve our internal tool set to make it much friendlier to use. This is a classic example of, you know, the cobbler's children have no shoes mm-hmm. was that our moderation tools were functional but, you know, ugly and didn't really make sense and the usability wasn't very good on them because there's only four users for that, mm-hmm. right? Five users? Just us. So there wasn't a lot of value in making those tools a whole lot better. It's always really painful that when you're using internal tools, they have to be kind of crappy. Exactly. So we, we that was largely stuff I did, actually. But it was uh, just trying to come up with ideas to slice and dice the data to show you different pictures of what's going on in the system. And, and really the focus, the more I thought about it, the focus was really on flagging. The way you communicate with moderators is by flagging different things in the system. And that brings it to their attention, and they'll handle it through whatever means they deem necessary. Right. So anytime something weird is happening, definitely flag it. Yeah. Um, okay, I made a really good point that you didn't hear because I was saying something. Oh, go ahead. Other, I can't remember what it was anymore. Say it again. What? <laughs> I've forgotten. Wow. <laughs> but anybody who's listening to the show will be like, Joel said something, and Jeff didn't hear it, and it's really important. I'll probably hear it in the, uh, in the run-through later. Okay, we can add it to the show notes. Yeah, but this is an exciting step, I think, for... So moderators. The more I thought about this, I was really apprehensive, first of all. We also have a lot of logging that we do. I'm kind of anti-logging. Oh, I know what my point was. I asked if the moderators... We, we, now, ultimately, the moderators can't do anything we can do because we can change the code. Well, that's true. So. They can't recompile the code. They can't actually query the underlying database, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, we do have that. That's, that's a good point. You're right. Um, but in terms of... Interaction with the live system, there's no difference. Right. Between what we can do and what they can do. Also, we, we, have have the right of... to, we have the ability to write checks using the Stack Overflow bank account. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so this, this, it's, not, it's not a total, although we may, I mean, you know, we could, we could add that for, you know, 200 million karma or something. 200 sure. million? That's yeah. great. Okay, we trust you. 200 million, you can write John checks. Skeet's going to be there in like a month, so <laughs> beware. Oh, speaking uh, of going to be there, that, that's an that's a excellent segue for me to point out that John Skeet will indeed be at the Stack Overflow Dev Days in London in October. Uh, cool. So, uh, um, and uh, he'll be talking about something, I don't know what, um, something fun cool. and esoteric. That's good. That's exciting. Also, while we're yeah. announcing speakers, Scott Hanselman will be at uh, both the Seattle and the San Francisco Stack Overflow Dev Days uh, as a oh, speaker. Oh, very nice. That's great. And we're still we're still working on lining up the rest of the speakers. If you know somebody who is a great speaker, this is for you to, and our listeners as well. If you know somebody who mm-hmm. would be a great speaker to do a tutorial topic uh, on any of those things that we wanted to do, uh, ASP.NET MVC, um, jQuery, uh, Google uh, App Engine, Android development. Um, actually, we have Android speakers coming from Google. And a couple other uh, topics that I listed there, um, Python and Mercurial, actually. If you, you know somebody that would be great for a tutorial in Python or a t- tutorial on Mercurial or distributed version control systems, uh, please email devdays at stackoverflow.com, D-E-V-D-A-Y-S, at stackoverflow.com, suggesting the names, because um, I'm working on putting together the list of speakers. Any uh, news on more cities? Or yeah, we still- well, what happened is we uh, initially... Uh, the, the the truth is we hadn't we wanted to open it up to registration uh, before we had finalized like what the venues would be and where 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 where, where it would actually take place uh, just because we wanted to make sure that there would be some I mean, we expected very very high registration um, but you know you you never know for sure so uh, 
uh, you know, what, what, what the response will be. Um, so what we did is we knew that it's pretty easy to find 300 seat places just about anywhere. Uh, and so we opened it up to 300 people in each city. Um, it did actually, I think, I, I don't actually have the exact numbers, but I'm pretty sure it, ju- it sold out everywhere. Uh, and what we did is we dumped more seats on. So I think there are now 400 seats available in every city. Um, London was just outrageous. I think we sold out like 800 seats or something in London. Um, so uh, it, 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 it's, it's probably going to be pretty huge. I, I'm expecting 400 people pretty much in, in, in every city and something like 800 in London. Uh, and uh, so what we're working on right now is actually booking the venues um, so that we know exactly how many people we can accommodate, which should allow us to open a few more seats. And uh, if we're still like utterly and completely sold out, uh, we may add more, more dates or more cities or something like that. But uh, I wouldn't count on that. Okay, good to know. Dev days. That is yeah. the story of the dev days. We also have uh, one one more new feature that I think is worth a mention, which is improved uh, handling of duplicate questions. Dupes. Oh, yeah, became, now you can say what the dupe is. Yeah, you can actually be more literal about what the duplicate question is, and it sort of, it sort of automates the workflow so that you don't have to do as much work. It's less key presses to link duplicates together. That was really the goal, was just to streamline that process. Because mm-hmm. in my mind, linking duplicate stuff together, there's really two ways that you deal with duplicate questions. For things that are like very mild duplicates, they're actually different questions, you just want to make sure that the tags are, are matching. Right. Because if the tags are matching, they'll show up in our uh, related questions algorithm. That's very strongly attuned to tag matches like exact match like the exact same tags in both cases for the most i would say the closer they are they are related thematically the more strongly the tag should match okay so they'll show up in related question queries in the related sidebar and then for things that are just really truly utterly duplicates they're not different questions in fact then you do want to close them as duplicate and link them together using the uh the new functionality built into the system which is sort of an ajaxy way of Sort of type as you go, and it'll show you the matches, and just makes it easier to link the matches, uh, the the duplicate questions together. Mm-hmm. And and the reason we sometimes want those duplicates to stick around is because people have this uncanny ability, which I've mentioned before, but bears repeating, to ask the same question using like no words in common. Yeah, because uh, sometimes you don't even know what the word is for that thing that you want to do. Like yeah, you know you want to do a thing, and you know that the people that do that thing regularly probably have a word for it. Like today I was trying to figure out how to make latte art, which I don't think I'm ever going to figure out. But apparently you need your milk in the state that's called microfoam. And so there's a bunch of articles on the web about like how to get your milk into the microfoam state and what that means. But when I started out, I did not know that word microfoam. So I was having trouble finding those articles because it never occurred to me that there was, a, you know, I, I knew there was a word. I just didn't know what it was. So people searching for that kind of thing are going to be searching for like, you know, I don't know what they're going to be searching for, but they'll they'll use like 18 different words for that same problem until they 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 learn the jargon. I agree exactly. I mean that's just a yeah. natural part of the process. So and we need to, and we do want to come up in all 18 of the searches. And if we have 18 copies of the question about microfilm, do we? Is latte is that a programming related? <laughs> I think I'm going to have to make up a, a latte art Stack Overflow yeah. type site. It's funny you mention that because I use that, that strategy a lot in, in searching. When you're searching for some topic, mm-hmm. you'll do some initial search 
get some results back, and then you'll see certain words come back in the search that you hadn't thought of right. that seem related. So then yeah. you go back and sort of add those words to your search. And so it's very much you're doing much better because process. now you've got the right jargon. Yes, or you, you sort of accrete the right jargon over time with, with, as you refine your queries. Accrete. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to highlight about our development style on Stack Overflow Yes, and it strikes me with duplicates is is something that's that's like that. We didn't really focus on duplicates early on because we didn't really have enough questions that duplicates were like a serious issue. Right. Uh, but now that we have, you know, I think, gosh, I haven't checked. Like, I'm, I want to say like 180,000, 166,000 questions in the system. You know, the the odds of you getting a duplicate are much much higher. Yeah. So we sure. sort of deferred that work, and that that is something that I when I when I'm working on a project and I can actually control. I'm in a position of you know authority over the project. That is the way that I, I do like to run my projects. Is I like to, you know, you don't want to build speculatively. It's like, oh, well, what if this happens? What if this happens? I like to concentrate on the scenarios that you actually know are going to be an issue, mm-hmm. and then just sort of, you know, put off the other features until they actually become real problems. And duplicates were becoming a very real problem as we got more and more questions in the system. And I felt like that was the appropriate time to build that functionality in. You could also, it's, it's the reason I'm talking about this is I was going through and looking at our code base and I realized that so many of the features that we have now, we had no idea we were going to build these features like four or five months ago, mm-hmm. like literally. There was just no concept of these features. Okay. It, it really struck me how like the concept of closing questions has evolved so radically. Deleting questions. I still don't understand the difference between closing and deleting. <laughs> if a question is just completely inappropriate, is it enough to close it, or do I should I also delete it? Closing is essentially nominating a question to be deleted. But I'm a moderator, so You're everything a I do is like I've got like the hand of God, and if I just if I it'll just happen. There's no nomination involved. Not not in your case, but what you might want to do is close it to see what the community thinks of it. You could close it and then see if the community says, hey, you know, we don't think that should be closed and they reopen it, then... So let's say know. that, because like today I was looking at something, somebody had flagged it as not programmer related. And mm-hmm. I went and looked at it and it was indeed completely unrelated, utterly inappropriate. And in fact, the people had already voted to close it. Yeah. So I should have deleted it. It's on the road to deletion. Um, it just it it depends how much value you think is in having the closed question sort of stick around for various reasons. Um, right, right, right. But so, in general, closing is a, a step on the road towards deletion. Okay. Because the question is no longer alive in any meaningful way. You can't answer it anymore. Right. All you can do is sort of find it in a search. You could maybe edit it, I guess. But it's just part of the normal flow. And, and the reason we need this stuff is because, again, you know, y- you try to stay on topic. If everything is, is on topic, then I guess you would never need to delete anything and never need to close anything. But we've said, you know, okay, this site is for programming topics of a particular type, plus or minus 10%. There's obviously a gray area. Mm-hmm. Um, and things that don't fit that mold, we have to – part of just setting boundaries is having things like close and, and delete and also downvotes, of course. All right, do handling. Check. All right, should we take a listener question? Yes, please. All right. Uh, let's see. I got a couple of. Well, let's take. Let's take this one. Hi, uh, my name is Karthik Shanmugam. I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina. I have a statement, or uh, apparently it seems that uh, the more complex uh, system is, is to describe the simpler it is to manage. The argument is the more interconnected the system is. It has fewer degrees of freedom, so 
So consequently, fewer points must be touched or managed to impact the whole system. What do you guys think uh, the impact of this statement in terms of uh, complex IT systems? Uh, it's my understanding that um, uh, normally the more complex the system is, the harder it is to manage and easier it is to break and harder it is to work. But um, the other argument seems to be so convincing. <laughs> I'm not sure from a practical standpoint whether it's valid or not. Thank you. Bye. Yeah, how do you like that? Um, I'm not sure I understood the question. <laughs> I didn't either. <laughs> I just thought it was kind of kind of out there. Uh, it was about complexity of the system, but I, I, I think what I've he's always saying, thought of it. Yeah, go ahead. You tell me what you think the question is. I, I think what he is saying is, what do you think about this idea that a complex system is complex because it has so many constraints, and all those constraints actually make it easier somehow to manage the complex system because it's so darn constrained. Hmm. Uh, well, I think if you need a lot of constraints, it's by definition, uh, it's kind of a flawed definition. I mean, we certainly run into this with Stack Overflow because as we grew the system, we ended up with lots and lots of rules about how things worked. And it definitely did not get simpler. Like right now, like every now and then, actually every day, frankly, <laughs> I run into things in the system like, wow, we really should document how that works because it's a rule in the system about, like, let me give you an example of deletion. Mm -hmm. Like one thing we ran into early on was that, okay, if you post a question and it's your question, you should be able to delete it because you own it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, this gets a little weird if there's answers to your question that are really good answers. So if you delete your question, you sort of cascade deleted other people's hard work that mm -hmm. the community really liked. Yeah. So we had to come up with a whole set of rules around when can you actually delete a question and why. Like, for example, you can't delete a question if there's an accepted answer. Okay. Of course, you could unaccept at that point if you own the question, but uh, you can't delete a question if there's a certain number of answers attached to it because we think it must be good if it got that many answers, you can't delete it. Um, you can't delete a question if uh, there's a certain level of voting on the answers mm -hmm. because then you're sort of denying stuff, content that's good in the system. Right. So those are a bunch of rules. Now, that's not really documented anywhere in the system. Like, I don't, I don't know if that's even in the official fact. It might be after I talk about it on the podcast. But we haven't gone out of our way to sort of tell people about that, partly because we really don't want people to think about deletion as, as a way to deny other people stuff. Um, it sends the wrong message. But also because we just don't think it's... It, it's a rule that we needed in the system to prevent essentially misbehavior. Mm -hmm. And there's tons of rules like this now. I mean, you accrete them over time. Yeah. So I, I think it's kind of a flawed premise that having all these constraints somehow gives you a more controlled system. It's just more complicated. Sure. Yeah, I agree. So, it doesn't make any sense to me. Okay, enough with that one. Another listener question, or, or do we? Uh, sure. Do you want to take a Do you want to take a break and maybe we could do? I don't know what music, musical interlude, or. <laughs> Hi, Jeff. I only Joel. know the kazoo. So. <laughs> All right. Chris Barry from the UK here. Thanks for your podcast. I really enjoy it. I have two questions for you today. Firstly, I want to re-ask a question that I've already put on Stack Overflow, uh -oh. which is number two hundred four five seven two. This is the question. It's a bit of a business one. When working for a bespoke software agency, how do you win well-priced work? It seems there is so much competition that prices are driven down very low, and it's hard to argue with the cheapest provider. I know some clients will pay the correct amount for projects, but a lot of people are just looking at the bottom line. I feel this type of work is very different from a software product company or even an internal IT department in terms of budget. 
As Joel has said before, like internal IT, we mainly only get to version 1 of the product, unless the client is big enough. This means that it does not make business sense in the short term for us to make the product as good as it could be, due to the project being under-budgeted. I was previously working somewhere that always took on work for too little money, and the products were either not up to scratch, or the project dragged on until it started costing the company money to complete the work. To answer my own question, I believe the answer is to stick to correctly priced work and also spec extremely thoroughly, but I'd be interested in what experiences you might have had with issues like this. Question two is... All right, I'm going to pause now. We'll answer question one, and we'll get back to question two if we have time. I'm looking at this. So this is number 204572. Okay. Um, I'll look at it, too. Essentially, you have to be in the position of, of bidding for software development contracts, which is... Definitely an awkward position to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't really envy anyone that's actually in this position. I uh, I, I think that um, the the um, uh, the uh, answer that Chris is proposing uh, is not the right answer. Actually, that's your first intuition is uh, you know better specs and correctly priced jobs, like more nailed down specs and. I think that that, uh, that that's the obvious answer, and obviously everybody's been trying that, and yet everybody always has this problem. This is sort of a consistent problem of the medium-sized, uh, the small to medium-sized build-something-for-you kind of shop. Did this happen at Vertigo a lot? Oh, my God, all the time. Yeah, so that's about the size of shop where it happens a lot. And for some reason, yeah. you don't necessarily hear about this happening with, uh, I don't know, $10 million engagements that... that that IBM Global Consulting Mega Services does for you, although I'm, which is not to say that they're necessarily any more successful, but they don't seem to get into this problem of like an infinite amount of work and we never get paid for it. Well, maybe they do. Maybe they do just as much. Um, here, here's my approach. My approach is you have to understand that just specking something is not going to solve the problem. That if if we learn anything from uh, all the writers on agile software development. The the one thing we should learn should be that you you have to uh, uh, you know the the spec has to evolve as you develop the code it it just has to I mean you can try you can write down as much as you want up front which I'm all in favor of but to then freeze that and say that that is the only thing we can possibly deliver will guarantee that what you deliver will be will be you know unsatisfactory because as soon as you see it you discover these things hey just in this podcast we probably mentioned ten things that not ten seven things that we saw. In, in the development of Stack Overflow, and, and we changed about the design. that, we, that Like you said, we never would have thought that we needed the ability to uh, uh, make it impossible to delete a question that you put up after it's got good answers, for example. Right. So there's, there's no, I mean, you're not going to develop, you're not going to solve somebody's problem unless you do these things. And so this conflict comes from the fact that the, the clients n- need you to solve a problem. They don't need you to implement the spec, even if they promise that all they wanted is for you to implement the spec. You have to stop thinking of it as... Uh, there's a client, and the client has a piece of software they need built, and I'm the software builder. And that's the relationship we're going to have is that I'm going to deliver the software product in exchange for some money. And if you think about it that way, you're going to run into this conflict again and again and again and again and again. And if you think the way to fix it is to get the client to sign every page in blood of the spec, have a very detailed spec, and then you could say, well, yeah, yeah, I delivered exactly the spec. You know, you might win in a court of law, but you're not going to solve the client's problem. You're not going to make them very happy. And they're going to throw away your code and not hire you again, ever again. 
So um, the, the way to think about this instead is you have to take a slightly bigger picture. Your job is not to deliver some code according to a spec. Your job is to get into the client's shoes and figure out what their problem is, whatever their problem may be that can be solved with computers or something that you can build, and propose to them a complete solution to their problem, whatever it might be. That means that you have to be involved in the design. And when you're involved in the design, you have to be looking at it from the client's perspective, not from your perspective as a software developer that just wants to get paid. And your, your perspective is, gosh, I'm hiring these guys. I'm paying them the equivalent of $45 an hour. I've got to charge at least $65 an hour just to break even. And therefore, you know, maybe I'll charge $75 an hour for my profit and let's say $80 an hour to include all the things that are going to go wrong. It, that's not your client's perspective at all, at all. Your client's perspective is we are losing invoices left and right because the system that they're going into shreds them all in some bad way. And this is costing us money. And that's the problem that you're being hired to solve. And so you go in there looking at that problem and you have to see it from the client's perspective. You have to see it from the client's like return on investment. You have to be thinking about what am I building? How is this going to solve a client's problem in a way that makes sense to their balance sheet? Like you have to think about their business and you have to make sure that you're building them something that is cost effective for them and that will have a positive return on investment for them. And if you're not thinking about it at that high a level, if you're just coming in saying, oh, I don't know, I just write the code, then you're just a code monkey and you're not doing anybody any good and you're going to get these conflicts. If you are thinking it from their perspective, if you're taking the same approach as the CEO of the company would take that hired you, which is this better be worth the money that I spend on it or I'm going to be pissed, then, then you're going to have a successful engagement. Well, that's a great answer. And I, I think it highlights one of the, the core issues, which is the more I thought about that is you end up being adjunct employees of the company that you're doing work for. Mm-hmm. And you really have to approach it that way. It's, yeah. it's more very holistic. So you have to be willing, because I, I found this with in engagements where I was in these situations, like you become a proxy employee of that company, sure. which can be cool if the company is cool and you actually like the things that they're doing and they make sense to you. But a lot of times we go to companies where... It didn't really make any sense. Like you didn't really want to be there. You didn't want to be an employee of this crazy company that you're working for, even in an adjunct fake way. Right. It was sort of unsatisfactory. So it's it's almost like you end up being a part of this family that you didn't really sign up for. Right. So you have to be really careful when taking on engagements like that. And, and honestly, I just don't even like that business model at all as a programmer. Like I think that you should have a packaged product. I think that's much better than doing bespoke stuff. Yeah. In the big scheme well, of sure. things. But if you're in that business, at least you should understand that um, you're in, in, the, in the, the solution business. Did, I, did we talk about – did I talk about the coffee maker uh, thing? Where did I get I this? I uh, think so. Okay. So uh, – Give me is, a little bit. Uh, so uh, let's see. What was the – what was that book called? <laughs> Something about how to castrate a bull. What? Let's just Google that. How to castrate a bull. Uh, this is a book by Dave Hitz, who founded the the company NetApp, which makes those big file sharing file servers. Um, mm-hmm. They're these IP based, I don't know, enter- enterprise data storage company, uh, Net NetApp. And um, uh, this this is the kind of book where he just tells the story of creating NetApp, which is the kind of book that has absolutely no literary merit whatsoever. But I read them all always, just automatically. If it's a book about creating a high tech company, I will read it. And uh, anyway, uh, so he tells a story that I thought was really interesting about what the heck it means to be enterprise software. Like, what's the difference between enterprise software and off-the-shelf software? Mm-hmm. And uh, what's the difference 
in, in the type of clients. And he tells a couple of stories. The first story he t- told, which I thought was really interesting, is the first time he tried to make an enterprise sale, he went down to Georgia, Georgia Pacific, and he had his little net app under his arm. And he gets up and he gives the same demo he's been doing successfully for years. He talks about like terabytes per second and, and, and how many how much data storage the thing has and all the protocols that, that his device talks and how it doesn't have an operating system and all kinds of like really technical stuff mm-hmm. and, uh, and how much cheaper it is than the competition. And the, the head of the IT department there says, son, except I can't really do a Georgian accent, so pretend I'm, I'm, I'm saying this in a deep <laughs> South accent. He says, son, we cut down trees and make them into toilet paper. Tell me how your device is going to help us cut down trees and make them into toilet paper. And of course, needless to say, they did not win that <laughs> particular contract right well that, that's what that's what i'm saying is like when you yeah. work for a company that cuts down trees and makes them into toilet paper you have to have some enthusiasm for toilet the process paper. of cutting down trees and, <laughs> i mean you really really do that's right. that's where it became very problematic for me when i worked with clients that i liked that i thought had a cool business model and made sense it was fun it was great so what they and, but here's the thing the way if you do want to sell to georgia pacific you have to go in there and that's what you have to sell them something that helps them cut down trees and makes uh, because that's the that's the language they speak, and you have to solve that yes. kind of problem for them. You don't you can't necessarily expect them to do the translation for you into what piece of code that they need. And when you do make that kind of sale, that's where you get rich because that's where you can charge vastly larger amounts of money because you're solving a problem. You're not just you're not just a code monkey. You're not working hourly. You're actually coming in and fixing a problem, and that may worth be worth a great deal of money to somebody. So he gave this other example, which he just imagined. Uh, he's sitting in the hotel room, and he sees a little Mr. Coffee that they have in every hotel room, and he thinks about, like, what does Hilton Hotels, with the thousands of hotels around the world, how do, how do they get this Mr. Coffee to be in every hotel room and, and functional, working, like not broken? Like, how is it not mm-hmm. broken? And he said, well, you could do it the obvious way, which is, all right, a Mr. Coffee coffee machine costs $36, and I'm just going to order them the cheapest way possible, and I'm going to order a 1,000 of them and deliver them all over the world. And if one of them breaks, I don't really know what I'll do. I guess the customer will call down to the front desk. and But you don't really want that to happen, right? You want somebody checking these things to make sure they keep working. And you need somebody to bring coffee to, to the rooms, and you need somebody to update them if they're starting to look kind of shabby. And you actually... You have this pro- you have this coffee maker in room problem, and just buying the coffee makers only solves about twenty percent of that problem. Ah, like I see. actually getting the coffee maker into the room doesn't create a system for the coffee makers to be repaired and replaced when they break and detected when they're broken. It doesn't create a system for the coffee getting in the rooms. It doesn't. There's all kinds of stuff around making a successful coffee maker in the room that you might have to do, and. You don't really want to. And so what, what you want is a company that you can just contract with to make sure that there's always a coffee maker in every room and it always works. And for this, you might pay four times as much as the actual physical cost of the coffee maker because there's a service that's coming with it. And for those of us in the software world, that is the enterprise sale. That's what it means to be enterprisey. That's what When you make an enterprise sale, you don't go in and you say, I can deliver 10,000 widgets or I can give you 10 seats of fog bugs or I can give you um, whatever this particular piece of software is that you can also just buy on the internet. What you're doing is you're going in and saying, I will come into your shop and figure out what your problem is and I'll discover what the problem is and I'll make a system for solving this problem that just happens to use some product that my company supplies and I'll supply the product and then I'll supply consultants to install it and I'll supply people to train you and I'll get the whole process up and running and I'll supply people to run the process if you want and you'll just describe your toilet paper making problem and I will solve the whole thing. And that's why 
the uh, that's why you know IBM and, and Microsoft Consulting Services, like these big the big consulting firms, uh, go in and just charge two hundred fifty three hundred dollars an hour, and that's why the little consulting firms go in and charge eighty or ninety dollars an hour because that's the difference between providing the sort of the complete package where it's like mm-hmm. I, I will solve a problem and figure it out. Uh, you know, whether or not you're successful versus just I will give you warm bodies that will sit in chairs and type any code that you tell them to type. Doesn't sound very appealing, does it? No, I don't. I'm completely awful. They all sound terrible. <laughs> but but I, I love your analogy with the coffee uh, makers. That's exactly the point. Is that Dave hits. Dave hits you're really, analogy. Yeah. You're really going in and trying to provide this holistic service, mm-hmm. you know, where you, you have to go in and just really become adjunct. Just like if I was the guy going in and replacing all these coffee machines, at that point I kind of work for the hotel chain a little bit, right? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Kind of, except that you're 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 uh, you're focused on coffee, right? So you've got yes. the relationship. You're the coffee, coffee guy of DoubleTree yeah. hotels or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> for that time period when you're there. Yeah. So that's that was always my thing with it. Yeah, but, uh, that, that turned out to be a pretty good question. What's what's the second half of this question? Oh, it's a it's kind of unrelated, but I'll, I'll play it anyway. How do you deal with a large code base and disgruntled employees leaving backdoors in the code without doing a code review on each check-in? Thanks, guys. Keep up the good work. Backdoors. How do you deal with a code base with employees leaving in back backdoors? Well, don't, don't hire scumbags. Don't hire that guy. <laughs> I mean, really, isn't that what it boils down to? I mean, if you don't trust the people that you're hiring, then yeah. you have really deep problems. Well, let me tell you, I, that's I I, I, uh, I I remember saying that once at at a bank, and they laughed at me. <laughs> why? Why? why because you, when why? you're like, if you're a bank, you have a department that audits your employees to make sure they're not trying to steal from you. Ah, you have an internal affairs kind of thing going Basically, on. yeah. It's called audit and command and conquer or something. No, audit and control or something. This, <laughs> I mean, they have an entire department. They, once I, 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 I think I came up with the scheme, and I don't know if they ever really implemented this, where basically uh, they, re- they ran Excel with the macro recorder turned on at all times. Really? Yeah, so they had an audit trail of everybody that had ever changed a spreadsheet because the macro recorder records everything that you do while you're doing it. Right. Right. I don't know if they ever actually quite got that to work, but but that was sort of the idea, and certainly, um, uh, you know, audit trails. Now, if you're using version control systems, they do create audit trails that are reasonably hard to work around, especially if you're using strong passwords on that. And and mm-hmm. a lot of times, uh, the answer to to a problem is. You don't actually have to make sure that every line of code doesn't have a backdoor in it. You just have to make sure that if somebody did put a backdoor, uh, that you'd be able to find them because that'll serve as a, uh, a major uh, disincentive. And the other thing you can do is you can wait, kidnap. Wait, wait, that you could find them? You could find the person or you could find yeah, the Yeah, you know who did it. Like there's, there's, there's no deniability. So this is like the I'm going to get you sucker school of code management? Yeah, like, I mean, it's the same reason you put you know where you live? video <laughs> cameras in, in the... Look, I mean, I can't prevent... I can't prevent people from walking down the street and finding old ladies that can't defend themselves and hitting them over the head with with a hammer and taking their their purse. Like there's there's no physical way to physically defend old ladies. There's just a that. penalty if you do do it. Right. I see. You will probably be caught. But but you know it's it's interesting that you bring up this bank analogy. I really like that because that that does highlight the importance of certain industries. Like basically, you're handling money, so mm-hmm. they figure the. The opportunity for someone to do something is really high, right? The the benefit for them stealing is 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 high enough that 
it's worth it to them. I mean, like, I don't know. Yeah. If we had an employee at, at, at Stack Overflow that snuck some backdoor into Stack Overflow that allowed them to delete a question even after they left the company. It's right. Like, who cares? Okay. Yeah. It's not I know. that I mean, it's big like, of a deal. It's not worth it to them almost. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. So when you're when you're directly working with money, it becomes the incentive become, becomes a lot higher. So right. I like the idea that you would always just have systems that are in place, like checks and balances. Like you have an internal affairs division, basically, just like in police departments, you have a division of the police that's mm-hmm. entire job is to investigate the police. Right. They're highly unpopular. Right. Yeah, I'm sure everybody <laughs> loves those guys. <laughs> yeah, they, everybody hates these people. It's like the IRS, right? I mean, yeah. nobody wants to deal with these people, but. Uh, in the case of police or banks, you know, you kind of have to have these checks and balances in the system. So I guess maybe think about if you're the type of industry where that's really necessary, where what you're doing is high risk enough, then you have to have some internal department. That's all they do is just audit your stuff. Yeah. And at a high enough level, this actually relates to what I talked about earlier with having community moderators. One of the first things we decided was that, okay, we have to have lots of logging on these moderator actions. We don't log the mundane stuff that happens in the system that much. But in the case of moderator actions, they're unusual enough and powerful enough that they all need to be mm-hmm. logged. Right. So right. we kind of reach that same conclusion. So it's like you can do whatever you want, but as but as long as you realize that we know what you're doing. Yes. That serves as exactly. a There's also sort of that function of um, like in Rome when you want to take the bus, you buy a little ticket and then you get on the bus and you work your way to the middle of the bus and there's a machine there and you stick your ticket in this machine and it stamps your ticket so it can't be used again. And the question arises, what happens if you don't stamp the ticket? And the answer is nothing. You're, you're, it's, it's the honor system. But, but once in a while, there are inspectors who get on the bus, and they stop the bus, and they make everybody show their stamped tickets. And if anybody has an unstamped ticket, they get like a 50-euro like a fine on the spot. I don't really know what the fine is. And so the cost of the ticket divided by the percentage chance that uh, an inspector will board a bus at any given time has to be uh, less than or equal to the amount of the fine in order to get the compliance that you need. Right. So if the cost of a ticket is one euro and the fine is 50 euros and they're getting on the bus uh, less than 2% of the time, then you're actually better off not getting your ticket stamped. So the inspectors have to board, in, for, for that ratio to hold, the inspectors have to board at least 2% of the time for it to actually be worth getting your ticket stamped, uh, which they do. They, they board quite frequently. Right. Uh, which doesn't mean – and that system actually having an inspector checking 2% of all buses is much, much cheaper than, say, the Israeli bus system where the bus driver uh, takes your money and, and, and stamps your ticket as you get on the bus because uh, people can board the buses much more quickly in Rome. Like, like everybody can just swarm on. And then you'll see in, in Rome people will pass their, their tickets from person to person if the bus is really crowded and they can't reach the little stampy machine. Uh-huh. They'll just sort of pass it down, and somebody will stamp it and pass it back to them. Cool. No, that, that's a that's a great community analogy too for Stack Overflow, where if the risk is not very high, you just kind of presume that people are inherently somewhat good, mm-hmm. which I like to do. I mean, I'm I'm kind of a pessimist when it comes to the behavior of people, but in the aggregate, it's really surprising how often people do kind of do the right thing. Right. And looking at Wikipedia, looking at Stack Overflow, you're really banking on that. And, and and having just some sort of audit for the two percent of cases where things get weird um, right. is a much more effective system, and it actually is a competitive advantage for us. Like systems that don't trust the user are never going to be as good as the systems that trust the users sure. because they're just going to be much more alive. They're going to be ATMs, right? is what they are. 
Well, yeah, on ATMs, you have to have it right. It depends what you're doing, certainly. Yeah. So I, I actually have a Stack Overflow question we could... Okay, yeah, let's about. do. So one that I've had tagged for a long time. This one's from December 2nd. It's, what's up with O of 1? Um, and it's the number is 332952. And the asker is ORCMID. Wait, wait, that's not the number. 332952. 332952. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. That means that means fixed time, constant time. Right. It, it, he's just a- basically asking, in what scenario do you have algorithms that actually are O of 1? Right. You know, because it seems a little unrealistic on some levels, right? Like, how do, how do you have O of 1? Do you have just infinitely large memory? Everything's in memory, and just know the exact location, and there's no physical time to seek to that location. <laughs> right. Um, I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting question, because you, you, you always talk about big O notation, and, and O of 1, isn't that the best you can do? Uh, sort of like the no. God algorithm. Do they ever say O of zero? Because <laughs> that would be better. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know in our algorithms class, and yes, I did take an algorithms class. Yeah. Um, they would they would call this the God algorithm, where you would have a bunch of answers, and God would just tell you which was was the correct one. So, right. Well, don't forget that order of but one. But even that's could be... kind of O of one, right? That's yeah. one operation. Well, God picking the answer. An algorithm that always works correctly, but always takes seven weeks to 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 produce an answer. Mm-hmm. And it's always seven weeks, uh, is order of one. That's true. So don't forget, you can multiply that by anything. So that's the first. Uh, that's a that's the first sort of interesting issue, which is that that order of one just means that it's bounded time. Uh, that that and that was the, I think the accepted answer. It doesn't really necessarily mean that it's uh, a low or a fast algorithm. Um, and so, for example, let's see if you have. And that's the trouble with these with real world algorithms. If you have an algorithm that can, uh, I guess this doesn't really count if you just limit the amount of size of something. Like I was thinking, all right, let's say that you had an algorithm that could uh, always uh, find uh, a file on a disk up to one terabyte in size. It's like a hard drive search algorithm. And so the worst case scenario, and it does, it, it just does, it just looks at every page and tries to find the thing. I mean, it basically does a full scan of the entire hard drive. Well, if the hard drive is always one terabyte, then that algorithm is always going to take you know the same amount of time. It's always bounded. So eventually, you're going to finish searching the whole terabyte, and you're going to know the answer. Well, so, but that doesn't really count good. because if you had a two terabyte hard drive, it would take twice as long. So the algorithm doesn't. So that that's not a correct. Uh, so I'm just wrong there. Well, some people are pointing out that it could be you have two different dimensions. One is in time, and the other is in space. Mm-hmm. So it could be O1 time and then ON in space. Right. So actually, there's, there's other dimensions here that aren't really being discussed. Correct, yeah. And and your problem may have multiple like you may you may have an algorithm that takes as its input uh, two uh, an, an array of strings and the strings may be different lengths and the array may be different lengths. So you really have M and you have N. Like you have two different mm-hmm. sizes in your dimension or multiple sizes in your dimension. And so uh, uh, it may be order of one with respect to one of them but not with respect to the other one of them. Right. It, I think that's what's striking about it. Is it, it really is kind of like the God algorithm, like in the algorithms class of like just somebody picks the right answer. Um, There's just know, one operation. Yeah. I, you know, division. But I guess that has to be a fixed number of bits. All those algorithms are based on an assumption that you have a fixed number of bits. There's definitely some hidden assumptions here. I mean, I don't know. It, it's interesting to think about because when you think of big O notation, you think of, you know, 
in login or in squared or stuff like that. Like that's the best you can do. Right. You know. But oh 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 one is is the the, the floor. Okay, the I'll thing. tell you. How about how about a function? How about an algorithm that capitalizes the first letter of a word? Since it's always the first letter. Yeah, and it does it in place, <laughs> and it's done. That's all the algorithm has to do. <laughs> well, yeah. So that's a location of memory, right? So it's just manipulating. Yeah, all the... it's got to do is change that byte. It's got to read that byte once, and and then and then set that, you know. Look up. Oh, geez! Now you're gonna be like Unicode. I gotta look up the appropriate capitalization, but it doesn't matter. It's still bounded because all you're doing is changing one byte. Yeah, I, I guess. I guess the thing to think about there is you have the the algorithmic complexity, and then you have just practical concerns of you know how long does it take to get to that location in memory? Right? Is it sure. on disk? Is it on in memory? You know, there's a real it, yeah. There's a real tendency to believe that. Um, you know, if you have an order of n squared algorithm, it's always going to be slower than an order of uh, n log n algorithm, say, for example, for sort or something like that. And uh, and then people say, well, you know, I mean, it really depends on these are this is just the order. And so yes. it is true that for very, very large, if you it, it, it may be the case that you have a, a very, very efficient order of n log n or order of log n log n uh, algorithm uh, that can do something. But but the the constant factor that you have to multiply everything by is so high that it's only uh, that your algorithm only dominates for gigantic data sets, and realistically, you're using much smaller data sets. Did you have any Stack Overflow questions you wanted to cover this week? Uh, yeah, sure. How are we doing on time? I only got a little bit of time. I'll find one. What one did we do last week? Let's do that again. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> oh, actually, uh, I put the wrong one in the show notes. Remember. This is actually kind of a good question, which is, uh, do you source control your databases? And it's uh, question number 115369. And I like that one because the, the 115, I don't know, it's like a round number. I sort of like that. And the 369 is sort of symmetric. It's just like up the right side of the key. So I don't know about the question, but I sure like the uh Wow, it has a number. lot of upvotes. Uh, I feel that my shop has a hole because we don't have a solid process in place for versioning our database changes. We do a lot of backups, so we're more or less covered, but it's bad practice to rely on your last line of defense in this way. Uh, most shops ignore this issue because their databases don't change often. They just try to be meticulous. Um, and then the answer is, yes, you must do this. That's not the, I don't know why that's an accepted answer, but the answer should be... Uh, the, the, the answers that have come out... I encourage everybody listening to this podcast to go to that question in 115369 and provide some better answers explaining good ways of doing this and vote them up. I don't know. I think accept the answer is pretty good. I mean, it's by K. Scott Allen. It's basically linking to a set of posts by K. Scott Allen, who's... I actually know K. Scott Allen. He's really, really smart. And he had a good point there. So I I do like the accepted answer. Now, one caveat here that I would point to is you're really talking about putting the the schema of the database under source control. Right. Although sometimes you also want... Yeah. But sometimes you want some of the data under source control too. So it it can be a little tricky because you're putting both the structure and the stuff that goes in the structure under source control, which can get, get a little weird because... Typically, say you say you get latest from source control. Well, you get all the source code. Well, you also need to get the database, right? So you get the schema, and mm-hmm. then you publish the schema. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you have to actually go and there's a second step of publishing the data. You don't really have that for source code. Source code kind of intermixes data and you know the schema together, mm-hmm. but the database doesn't. It's sort of a different animal. So 
I, I guess that would be my one caveat. Is obviously yeah. the database. Should be so it's actually interesting because there's two kinds of data. At the low level, there's the data. Well, you got the schema, and that's just like empty slots for all the data that you want to have. And yes. then there's some data that you're always going to have there that actually may be driving the application in some way. Like, it's not really example, a constant. It's not constants uh, necessarily. It's not exactly constant, but but your, your application is not going to run without it. Yes, that's true. It, it, your application would just break. Like for example, in Fogbugs, uh, you know, we'll, we'll we'll put in a few rows uh, describing the basic states the bug can be in: open <laughs> versus closed versus resolved, etc. And that with, without that, if you start with that table empty, then Fogbugs just freak out because you can't live with that table being empty. So the concept of an empty Fogbugs database already has some of the rows in some of the table in a few tables. And it still looks empty. So, so that's that's like the sort of low level of data that you always have. And then and then there's the actual data, which you know you want to have backups of and stuff like that. But it's not actually driving the code in any way. It's not necessary to be under version control because if you lost it, that would be like losing your database. Well, that's right. And this also needs to integrate with your build process. You know. Sure. So tell me how. And also your deployment. T- t- uh, tell everybody how how Stack Overflow does it, just because uh, we were talking about that last week. Well, that's right. That's right, because we're starting to share code with Fog Creek now so they can build the hosted solution. And this obviously came up. was like, you know, when you get latest on our project, you're going to get a database project. So we actually use Visual Studio has some uh, explicit support for this in the uh, the team suite, sort of the fanciest version of Visual Studio, has a database component that will let you sort of absorb the schema and automatically decompose, sort of turns it into text files for you. Mm-hmm. Everything that's in SQL Server that would be related to the database is automatically sort of, you know, turned into a text file that you can then check into source control. And it'll let you also do builds. So when you build a database project, it deploys the database, right? And it can also deploy some of the data as part of a post-build step. Mm-hmm. It'll say, okay, I'm going to insert these rows. I'm going to do this stuff. And you can sort of hook into that just like you would with uh, the software side of the project. So if I let's let's say that you're 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 working on your code for Stack Overflow on your own PC, you got yep. your own instance of SQL Server, which yep. has a trash database or something, or well, yeah, you just have a database that you don't really care about. It's right. got some data in it, so you can actually yeah, so like you, you said, there has to be some data for you to see anything when you run the project. Sure, but it's not the production database. Yes, yeah, it's, it's essentially it's a copy of old data or something. And then you and oh. you and then you decide you need a new column. So you just go into your into SQL Server Enterprise Manager or something, or or the the okay. Server Explorer or something in Visual Studio, and you just right click on the table and you add a column. Right, and then I can do this thing where I can diff the uh, the physical database and the logical database, and okay. then there's a button that let, lets me pull the changes from that diff back into the files in the project. Does that make sense? Got it. So then after, so, so you would do it that way. And when you're ready to check something in, you're going to run this diff and it's going to be like, okay, you added these three tables and these two columns and this stuff. Right. But you, it still takes some discipline because you could just tell everybody in the project, hey, run the SQL and this will create your database. Um, no, but you have, but, but that's like not using version control. So we're talking about right. how to do it with version control. So now, right, so with, yeah. So with version control, the way, the way, the way you're supposed to do it, and I'm not saying we all always do this because mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes it's inconvenient. You would read get latest on the database project, mm-hmm. redeploy your database from scratch, and then rehydrate it with the data. The rehydrating of the data is where it gets awkward because typically we want tons of data. We want the data that's yeah. actually in the live system yeah. for the most part, which typically means in, in, functionally what we do, we actually download the production database. So I'm confused. Which, can't you, can't you uh, hold on, can't you, I've got a database in version N and another database in version N plus one. 
Yes. I can do the diffs. Can I just yes. tell it to my automatically alter, make migrate those changes yes. onto the? Okay. Absolutely, you can. Yeah. But if it's a column that actually requires data to function, then you're kind of SOL. Oh, so you have to have some code that pre-populates. Like you, like you might have created a new column, which is just like a cache of something else. Yeah. And exactly. so you, you, so when you create this column, it has to be populated somehow. Yeah, you run into some weird cases because the database just really isn't like code at all. It's really kind of a different animal. Sure. Um, but you definitely want to diff. I do want to emphasize, if you get one thing out of this part of the podcast, it's that the ability to diff databases and migrate those changes back and forth is unbelievably convenient, and you should absolutely have that in your tool set. Right. Um, but, but in terms of dealing with the actual data, uh, you know, in terms of day-to-day production, you don't always take the, the formal route. Everything stays under source control. In fact, before we gave you guys source control, mm-hmm. I... One of the reasons I was delaying was I wanted to download a new production database, diff it against the project, and make sure I had like the actual schema we were using in source control. Because mm-hmm. we, we hadn't actually done that in a while. <laughs> so what you guys have in source control is you, you have the exact schema copy of our production database. Right. So you should be able to run the project and just populate a few fields and get going. We'll see what happens. There's yes. another thing that people use. I can't remember the name of it. It's sort of like the Rails. Uh, this, this, this is an open source thing that everybody uses in the ASP.NET MVC world to do this. Oh, well, there, I know in the Rails world, there's this thing called migrations, which right, is right. essentially where you would. And, and I'm I don't know much about this. I probably shouldn't even talk about this. I know so little. But my understanding of the theory is that every time you make a change to the database, there's a little version script that gets generated automatically and everybody can just run it as part of the project. You would just essentially... And it, and it moves you forward in the database. It moves you schema. forward. It brings all the data up to date. Everything is completely automated. It's supposed to be really nice. Right. And then if you're disciplined and you never actually go change your database, but you simply write a migration, then you're pretty confident that this is going to work. Yes. And it, it, that's right. That would be the best of all possible outcomes. We don't, we're not at that level yet, but... Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, uh, um, 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 okay. Anything yeah. else we want to talk about this week? No, I think that definitely covers it. Um, okay. Uh, I, I should thank, we have a, a new sponsor this week, mint.com, who is sponsoring the show in order to, to, to hire a, a developer because they want to hire a good, uh, developer. So if you're a good developer, go work for mint.com. And, um, in the meantime, if, you, if you're a listener and you have a question uh, that we haven't addressed uh, or you have a comment or something you want us to talk about, um, please call the Stack Overflow podcast hotline at 646-826-3879. You can also record an MP3 or Og Vorbis file and email it to podcast at stackoverflow.com. Um, we have a wiki which is used by volunteers around the world to write down transcripts of the show, which is very helpful to our hearing impaired listeners and also makes these shows searchable by, by, uh, by Google and uh, uh, and so forth. And so that's a uh, very uh, valuable service provided. There's always a link to the wiki from the show notes. The show notes are located at blog.stackoflow.com where you can find links to all the things that we've mentioned in the show and sort of a outline of what we talked about. You should be subscribed to blog.stackoflow.com in your RSS reader anyway. That's it. See you next week. See you next week. I'm just looking at this question. What's your favorite character? <laughs> this is really funny. It's uh, number 357219. I should have three, talked about this one. 57209. 357219. 219. I can't, you know, everybody says you're supposed to be able to remember 7 to 9.
digits. Mm-hmm. I can do two. <laughs> two. You got to work your way up to seven. What's your favorite character in the symbolic sense, not the dramatic sense? And I'm talking about function rather than design, although that's an interesting question too. You know, this is actually kind of a crap question, but if you look at some of the answers, like, well, that's actually kind of a good point because some of these characters actually are kind of fun. All 255 <laughs> is a good one. Yeah. Did you know that one? Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, my, my favorite is Snowman. Can I answer that as my answer? What's, how do I enter it? Alt what? Uh, hold on. I'll find it for you. It's the character map. You have to run character map and then you have to type search for snow. And it's You can here. search in char, char map? Yeah. And it's, ah, uh, what? Here, 2603. Does that work? Alt. Alt. You're going to have to just, uh, I don't know, I don't know how to, how to type alt for the really high Unicode characters. Run, run char map. Choose, choose a font that has all the Unicode things. So go to like, Wait, how do Unicode. you search char map? You can't search char map. You're high. I'm searching char map right now. What do you it's do? It's at the bottom. It says search for colon. Oh, click advanced view. Oh, advanced view. I see. What the hell? Wow. Yeah, type snowman. Oh, this is so cool. Uh, it's not in the font that I'm currently using. Which, which font should Arial I Arial Unicode. Arial Unicode. Uh, Arial, Arial Unicode MS? Yeah. Snowman. Oh, yeah. my God. That's cool. <laughs> See, this should be a question on Stack Overflow. Yeah, I'm answer- I'm I'm putting that on as my answer. I like that even better than Airplane. Wow, I didn't know you could do this. Wait. I'm going to actually update that with actually a screenshot of this because I had no idea this was even possible. Airplane. It's a really good one. Search char map. What the hell? I didn't know that was possible. That's cool. See, good example of a semi-crap question producing really good answers. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.